Hello, everybody, and welcome to Time and Attention, the podcast dedicated to helping you become a better, more intentional human being. This is episode number 64, The Extended Mind. I am beyond excited to welcome Annie Murphy Paul to the podcast. Annie is an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine and Scientific American, among countless other publications. Her latest book, which I loved, is called The Extended Mind, as you heard in the title of the show. Uh, The subtitle of the book is The Power of Thinking Outside the brain. Uh, it's it's a fantastic read that I highly recommend. It was published in uh, June of 2021, and since then it's been selected as an Amazon editor's pick for best nonfiction and as an editor's choice by the New York Times Book Review of all places. Uh, her TED Talk has received more than 2.6 million views. Uh, there's, there's my terrible Dr. Evil impression. Uh, But above all that stuff, she's just a fascinating person who wrote an incredible book. Uh, In fact, even just a few pages into the extended mind, I realized that we just had to get her on the podcast uh, to share some of her ideas with you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Annie. Annie Murphy-Paul, welcome to Time and Attention. I want to begin with the premise of the book, which, frankly, I I find to be quite beautiful. Uh, You write in the introduction about the argument against the brain-bound perspective of intelligence and the quite related notion of the extended mind, and you write about this, uh, quote, During my many years of reporting, I had never before encountered an idea that changed so much about how I think, how I work, how I parent, how I navigate everyday life. That's a big statement, especially coming from somewhat uh, with so much history and research as you. So my question for you is, what is the brain-bound perspective of thinking and the extended mind? So the brain-bound perspective is the one that we're all familiar with, which would say that thinking happens inside the brain. It's almost like a given, like, well, yeah, where else would thinking happen, right? But yeah. The theory of the extended mind, which was proposed by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, they say no. No, actually, the mind extends beyond the skull, beyond the brain, It's and thinking processes are actually spread out across the body, across our physical surroundings, across our relationships with other people, and even across our um, interactions with our devices and our technology. So actually thinking is not confined to the brain. That would be the brain-bound perspective. And the extended mind perspective is that thinking happens out here in the world, not inside the brain. Mm. It's it's such a fascinating idea, and it's no wonder you wanted to dive so deep into it. So you talk in the book about all the ways that we can extend our mind. You cover everything from our bodies to our surroundings to our relationships. Uh, One one idea, one of these ideas that has really struck with me is the sensations in our body. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can start there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You write about how we, quote, have sensors in our bodies that send our brains a constant flow of data from within, uh, and how in some cases the body can be more rational than the brain. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, what are these signals that our body is trying to send to us? And how do we tune into what they mean? Yeah, so 
You know, scientists have a word, uh, kind of technical term called interoception, and that's really um, just another term for gut feelings, you know, mm. that, that kind of sense that we have from within our bodies. It doesn't seem to come from our heads, but it, it's guiding us in one direction or another. And that can seem really kind of woo-woo and like, okay, your intuition, you know, but actually there's something real going on there, which is that as we navigate through our everyday lives, we're taking in so much information that we can't process or store it all consciously, but we are taking it in and we do um, we do hang on to it, but on this non-conscious level. So then the question is, well, how do you have access to all that knowledge and experience if it's non-conscious? And the answer is that's what these bodily signals are. It's kind of your body trying to get your attention, you know, like tapping you on the shoulder or tugging on your sleeve saying, you've encountered a situation like this before, and this is what happened before. This is, you know, if you feel a little bit nervous or if you feel a little bit excited, those are your body's ways of telling you, sending you a message about how to handle this new situation that has some some uh, resonance or some echoes of a, a situation you've experienced before. Mm, so how do we tune into those signals and, and interpret them? Is there a way to do so? Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that these this flow of internal sensations is with us all the time. It's just that we're so focused on the external world, all the information coming at us, you know, through our eyes and our ears and our other senses. Um, but that flow of internal sensation is there and we can tune into it. Um, one of the most effective ways of doing so is borrowed from mindfulness meditation and often at the start of a mindfulness meditation session, uh, you'll do a body scan, which means bringing open-minded, non-judgmental, accepting, curious kind of attention to whatever is arising in your body. And it, it might be a, a formal kind of practice where you're literally going from, from part to part of your body. You know, first you feel what's there to be felt in your foot and your leg and your hip, and you kind of move through the body. Or it can be a more informal kind of practice where you just check in with yourself on a periodic basis and you say to yourself, what am, what am I feeling? What's my inter What's going on in my internal world right now as opposed to mm. this external world that is usually grabbing my attention? Interesting. Is this something that you do? I do. That more informal kind of um, checking in with yourself. I try to do that a few times a day. And it's really amazing how... Often we we push aside those internal feelings. Um, in fact, almost deliberately and intentionally, we feel like, okay, if I'm going to power through and get this done, I need to suppress or push aside what I'm feeling, which is a mistake because actually yeah. those internal sensations can give us so much information about the decisions we're making, the feelings we're having. They can help us um, avoid becoming burned out because that happens when you lose touch with, you know, what's going on with, with you on the, on the inside. So having a kind of balance of information coming in from the outside, but also tuning into what's going on in the inside, I think is a really healthy way to operate. 
Yeah, it's such a great idea in the book, and it's it's so simple, but yet yet we rarely tune into this stuff. I noticed after reading this particular chapter of the book that I noticed in just in meetings, I would grip a pen that was in my hand with yeah. like an iron fist, yeah. and I'm thinking, okay, yeah. maybe this means something. Maybe this is data yeah. uh, that that, right. that is useful here. Right, right. I think thinking of it as data as information is really is really useful. And after you talk about our body sensations, you then explore movement. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the practical advice the, throughout the book. It's it's not one of these books where it's a, a pile of research. There's actual mm-hmm. tactics, things mm-hmm. that we can do immediately mm-hmm. uh, after in order to put this stuff into practice. Uh, and I love the, the advice you give in the chapter on movement around the different intensities mm-hmm. of exercise and how they affect us, uh, including how you know, low, medium, high intensity activity is good or sometimes not so beneficial or helpful depending on what we're trying to do. Uh, can you break that down a little bit? You know, how, how do we know what intensity of activity pairs well with what? Yeah, yeah, you're right. The key is to be really intentional about how we use movement to enhance thinking. So that first category of low intensity movement refers to the fact that we're kind of meant human beings evolved to move, um, even in just sort of small micro ways. Um, and it actually takes a fair amount of mental bandwidth to inhibit that urge to move, to, to, mm-hmm. um, control and suppress that urge to move. And that's mental bandwidth that we could be applying to our, you know, to our work or to our learning. And so when we allow ourselves to make those little movements, um, uh, as we're thinking, that can really um, open up a lot of of mental resources. And one way to do that is to work at a, at a standing desk. You know, um, even just standing, we tend to move a bit more than when we're sitting. We might shift from foot to foot or kind of move our arms around. And so, um, or you can choose to sort of pace. And a lot of people find that they that um, pacing, uh, you know, back and forth or in a circle can help them with their thinking. Yeah. Um, so then there's medium intensity uh, activity, physical activity, which is like if you were to go on a run or a bike ride, you'll you'll find that immediately afterwards and lasting up, up to two hours after a bout of medium intensity act, physical activity, your mental capacity is uh, is elevated. Your your mm. faculty mental faculties are sharper which is like a really good reason to give kids recess, you know, because yeah. they they can run around and then they ret- as teachers know, they return to the classroom um better able to focus and to apply themselves to their schoolwork. And then finally there's high intensity activity which as you said it can go either way. I mean, um it's very hard or or impossible really to do any thinking when you're really, really intensively exercising. So it's not the kind mm-hmm. of thing where you can go for this really intense you know, sprint and meanwhile be thinking big thoughts. But it is the case that um, when we work out or um, physically uh, exert ourselves at a really intense high level for a sustained amount of time, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that does like the judging and analyzing and criticizing of ideas, um, that tends to to go offline a bit. It like um, it dials down its its activity so that mm. you enter a state. Uh, scientists call it hypofrontality. That means like a low level of frontal activity. 
um, that has been compared to like a dream state or even like a drug trip where like <laughs> ideas are kind of mingling and um, moving around in more dynamic ways. It's just, just a very creative state because the mind's um, judge is not sitting there kind of um, shooting everything down. So um, if people want to enter a state like this, they can try, you know, exercising really uh, vigorously for a sustained amount of time. And they may find afterwards that they they enter this kind of um, really loose, associative, creative state. Mm. Yeah, the recess example I found to be so compelling. You write in the book, uh, you know, how schools across the country, around the world, uh, they're reducing recess or even mm-hmm. eliminating it. But that that really speaks to that, uh, the value of that extended mind perspective mm-hmm. rather than that brain-bound perspective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of intelligence, doesn't it? It does, because the idea behind eliminating recess is to give students more quote-unquote seat time, you know, for them thinking to... Time. Thinking time, right? With the this... this um, you know, sort of common sense, but really actually misguided idea that the more time they sit still and quietly and do that thinking, the better they'll do, the the more, the smarter they'll get, the more they'll, they will learn. And in fact, it's just the opposite. If they were given more time to exercise their bodies and then return to the classroom, they'd actually, I think that's a much more promising strategy for raising students' performance. Mm. Do you, do you think we kind of make back the time that we spend moving in terms of being able to think? We do. We do. And I think a lot of us have found in our own lives as adults, as professionals, that um, we can sit at that desk and try and try to figure something out or come up with a good idea. And it's when we stand that we finally give up, you know, and go for a walk yeah. or like go wash the dishes or something that that's when the idea comes to us. Oh, so it's so fascinating. You know, one, one other topic in addition to to movement, to uh, understanding the signals that our body is trying to send to us is that you cover in the book is nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the fascinating stats you mentioned around that uh, is how we just we spend just around 7% of our time outdoors now, uh, but yet mm. this lack of time in nature affects us in ways cognitively that we aren't necessarily aware of. Uh, would you be able to speak a bit to that idea and how nature as well can support thought? Yeah, yeah. This too was, I originally approached this with a little bit of skepticism, like it sounded sort of tree-huggy, like, yeah, get out in nature, it's good for you, you know, but (laughs) there's actually real science behind it, which is that, you know, if you think about it, human beings evolved in nature. As you noted, you know, we spend so little time outside now, we're in homes and cars 90, upwards of 90% of the time, but that's a very unusual situation um, that's a historically very recent development. We used to spend all of our time outdoors. We evolved in the outdoors. And the kind of information that's available in the outdoors, the kind of stimuli that um, that we encounter when we're outside, is processed really easily and effortlessly by our brains. Like our brains are tuned, our, our sensory faculties are tuned to what we encounter when we go outside, as opposed to the kind of straight lines and hard edges um of an interior, a built setting, or like the fast moving objects or loud noises of like an urban, a highly urban setting. When we're in nature, our attention is sort of pleasantly diverted here and there. Like we might see a bird over here, or we might look at this tree over there. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of variety. There's like green and more green, you know, and um, 
It's Maybe all a bit very of yellow. Yeah, <laughs> a little yellow. Yeah, here in New England, there's some red and yellow of the leaves, yeah. but um, it's all very easy and and uh, for our minds to process, and that allows our attentional capacity to be restored. You know, we're always mm. focusing on like how are we managing our attention, where are we directing our attention, but we don't. So we're thinking about the demand side, but we don't really think about the supply side, like where's your attentional, uh, where are those resources coming from? Where, how, how are you refilling the tank, you know, yeah. and the fastest and easiest way to refill the tank, the tank of your attentional resources is, um, by spending some time outside. Mm. Is it enough to just see nature outside your window or do you, do you have to be in it? Are there benefits to just observing nature? There are, I mean, um, it's the full effect is, um, is definitely stronger when you when you are able to go outside and experience nature with all your senses and to you know breathe in the fresh air and um, and even to spend some really extended time in nature turns out to be beneficial for creativity. Like if you can manage like a three day hike, there's um, what psychologists call the three day effect that people mm. seem to become more creative and open-minded after they've spent three days in nature. But not all of us have three days in nature to take off on a on a hike. So it turns out that even as little as 40 seconds of looking out a window at a green a scene of, of greenery in nature um, has that attention-restoring effect. So, you know, along with checking in with your body and seeing what you where your interoceptive capacities are, um, I think it, it's also a good idea to stop during the day and and take a look outside or even take a walk outside. Yeah. Are, are there kind of signals we can look for that we need more time in nature? Well, you know, the kind of work that we do or that many of us do in, in sort of knowledge professions is is so, um, it's really draining, this kind of focusing on, on abstract concepts and symbols. And it really, um, it can burn out our attention really quite quickly. So when we start to feel like we can't focus or we're not thinking so clearly, that kind of brain fog <laughs> that a lot of us experience, that's that's when you need to restore your attention. And that's when a, mm. a walk outside would be a good idea. Yeah, I love that. Uh, you know, something that we talk about quite a bit on this podcast is how our environment as well shapes how we act. And you cover mm. in great depth in the book how our environment shapes how we think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you share research about everything that matters in this way from whether or not we have walls around us, uh, whether we're in an open office, uh, you know, why it matters if we have control over mm-hmm. our environment where we mm-hmm. work and so much more. Uh, I'm curious in this journey to write the book what you have personally found the most interesting and impactful and how our environment shapes how we think. Yeah, well, I I have incorporated a whole lot of the research that I came across in writing the book. I have incorporated it into my own life and my own work life. Um, We've talked about paying attention to interoceptive sensations and, and spending time outside and engaging in physical activity. And another one that's really been important for me is this idea of cognitive offloading, that we all tend to do way too much in our heads. Like we we try to get everything done like inside our brains when really the more we can offload the contents of our brains onto physical space, whether that's like a big whiteboard or a multi-monitor setup that we have with our computer or a bunch of post-it notes. This is my particular favorite. I'm a big, I'm a profligate <laughs> post-it note user. How many are in front of you right now? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I'm looking count? over at this, giant Bolton board I have and there's there's lots and there's many colors. So, you know, everyone ha- yes. everyone has their method. But 
But I'm the, picturing like one of those crime shows where there's like string <laughs> attached to the post-its and pictures and it's like you're solving a puzzle. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it turns out that the you know, our brains evolved to uh not to deal with con- with abstract concepts but to um do things like manipulate physical objects and navigate through three-dimensional landscapes and we're still the brain we're still really good at that. The brain still does that really effortlessly without a lot of cognitive load. Um, And so the more we can turn ideas and information into objects to be manipulated, like a post-it note that you can move around, or and or 3D landscapes that we can actually kind of move our bodies um, in front of and use our spatial memory, Mm -hmm. like, oh, this these ideas, I'm going to group these over here, and these other ideas I'm going to put over here. You know, all those are embodied resources that um, come naturally to us as humans, but they really get wasted when we do it all in our heads. Mm, interesting. Uh, d- do yeah. you have any thoughts on open offices? <laughs> oh, yes, I have thoughts. <laughs> it seems you might have many reading the book. <laughs> yeah, and I've worked in an open office and I years ago, and I found it very distracting. Um, I've, I've worked at home now for many years, so the whole COVID switch was not a change for me. But um yeah, open offices, I think, were just a terrible invention. And I, I hope I, I hope as we go back to the office that we come up with better solutions because, you know, the people get we get mad at ourselves for becoming distracted, but in fact, we're wired to be distracted. You know, a distraction mm-hmm. could mean an opportunity or it could mean a threat. I mean, it's really a survival mechanism to be attuned to what's going on in your environment. And humans are especially attuned to certain kinds of uh, stimuli in their environment, like anything that's novel or new, you know, some some kind of change in your environment. And then especially um, social information and speech, they, these things grab our attention and there's literally biologically no way to prevent that from happening. We're just wired to pay attention to other people and to and to process the content of speech, whether or not we want to be listening or hearing or or, you know, thinking about what people around us are saying. So for those reasons, we really need external structures like walls, you know, like private offices to protect us from all those distractions and to allow us to engage in that really deep, um, immersive cognitive work. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, one other question I have for you is around people. Um, You know, in the book, you cover how we can socialize with experts, our peers, and groups as well to think more deeply and more clearly. I'm curious, in all that research you conducted <laughs> mm-hmm. while writing the book, mm-hmm. what, what did you learn that most changed how you think about people and how we can think uh, with them? Yeah. You know, I think I was really affected by the section about thinking with experts because mm, yeah. all of our education systems, our workplace training systems, they're all based on the idea of experts teaching novices, which of course makes sense in a way, but it turns out that experts, by virtue of being experts, are almost like the worst people to have training uh, or teaching novices because <laughs> the very nature of expertise is that um, what experts know has been has become automatic. It's, be- it's become so well-practiced that they don't even have conscious access to it anymore. That's how they're able to do things so easily and fluidly. But then by the same token, when they go to explain what they do and how they do it and why they do it to a novice, they leave out lots of steps because they're they're actually not even conscious of what they do anymore. And that's very confusing 
for um, for the beginner who doesn't have all that information and is just beginning to approach this 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 subject. So it turns out that for experts to be good teachers and guides, they really need to work very hard to recover that feeling of being a novice and to mm. break down there and make visible and explicit their own expertise so that novices and beginners can learn from them. You also mentioned just how powerful it is when we can uh, imitate experts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, we have such a bias against imitation in our culture. You know, it yeah. immediately brings to mind ideas of plagiarism or, you know, or, or you know, less, um, less seriously, just um, sort of being lazy and copying. You know, we, have, we place such a premium on innovation and originality and creativity. But in fact, imitating is often the most efficient and effective way to master um, a new topic. And in fact, for centuries, the, the education system of the ancient Greeks, for example, was completely based on imitation, on emulating the masters. And it was only once you'd really mastered um, the, the, that craft from the inside by, by emulating the masters that, you know, students were expected to add their own twist or their own um, contribution. So I think if we can get past our, our bias and our prejudice against imitation, it can be a really effective way to learn and to, um, to get inside uh, expertise that otherwise would be inaccessible. Fascinating. Yeah. C- congrats again on the, uh, on the incredible book, The Extended Mind. I'd encourage anybody uh, listening to this interview right now, um, if, if you like our conversation, uh, there's there's so much uh, to dive into in the book. Annie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Chris. This has been really fun to talk to you. So finishing up, leave a review of the show if you got a minute or two. It doesn't take too long on Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. And if you email me a screenshot of that, chris at alifeofproductivity.com, I'll mail you a signed postcard. Arden and I will sign it. She and I will be back in a couple Tuesdays. We'll see you then.